Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week we take a deep dive into Scripture for spiritual strengthening and to increase our biblical knowledge. Usually Scripture is my starting point, but sometimes the events of the day make it necessary to start with practical concerns and then move to Scripture for enlightenment. Today is such a time. This week, a 20-year-old black man, Dante Wright, was shot and killed during a traffic stop by Brooklyn Center, Minnesota police officer Kim Potter. While only eight miles down Interstate 94 in Minneapolis, a jury was hearing the case against Officer Derek Chauvin in the killing of another black man, 46-year-old George Floyd. These cases immediately evoke a growing list of names, including Michael Brown and Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, which kicked off a nationwide protest and many riots, and 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago. The list is much longer. Most of the names are forgotten. Everyone admits that each of these killings is troubling and tragic. Even more troubling is the frequency of these violent endings of the lives of black men who are disproportionately dying at the hands of police officers during arrest. Beyond feeling troubled, what can Scripture and our faith teach us that will help us respond and shape our attitudes and behaviors? Who is responsible for these killings and the conflict and destruction that often results from them? In religious language, we might ask, who sinned that all this is happening? This question has been asked by people for thousands of years as they tried to explain or understand human tragedy. The Bible says that human sin originated with Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. The question of sin and its consequences was put directly to Jesus by his disciples when they witnessed a blind man by the side of the road. The story goes like this. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. John 9, 1-3 Now, this seems like kind of a silly question from the disciples. It would be hard to see how the man's own sinfulness could have caused his blindness unless he committed some kind of prenatal sin or was being punished in advance for sins that God knew he would commit in the future. This is an example of blaming the victim. And it would seem unfair that he was being punished for the sins of his parents. Well, Jesus' answer is neither. Jesus says that it's so that he can demonstrate his power by healing the man of his blindness. Now, that always seemed unfair to me that this man's affliction was used as a visual aid in showing the power of God by Jesus. But that's how the story goes, but it doesn't help us much in our current situation to understand what's going on with us. Elsewhere in the Bible, however, the cause of people's misfortunes is clearly assigned to the actions of previous generations. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34, 6-7 Now, according to this reading, we can be punished for sins committed as far back as our great-great-grandparents. Once again, it seems rather unfair to me that I should be punished for something that my distant ancestors committed. Some of them were dead before I was even born. This may be more applicable to our problem with racial violence, though. Maybe we're being punished for the sins of the slave trade perpetrated by Americans in the first centuries of our country's existence. I didn't sin, but my great-great-grandpa who lived in the South, may have. And when we ask who sinned that we suffer, the answer may not be a matter of the past, but of our relationship with someone who is currently sinning. Take, for example, the brutal actions of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Because of the violence they have perpetrated, thousands of innocent citizens and innocent U.S. troops have died. Innocents always suffer in war, just by virtue of being the citizens of the wrong country. We sanitize the murder of these innocent victims by calling them collateral damage. In other times, suffering doesn't seem to be the result of punishment for sin at all. Rather, it's just random. Bad things sometimes happen to good people without explanation. Job in the Old Testament is the prime biblical example of random suffering being visited on innocent people. We're told in the beginning that Job was a righteous man without fault before God. Yet through a series of disasters, he lost everything, his livestock, his considerable wealth, his family, and finally his own health. Sometimes bad things happen, absent any sin being committed at all. The upshot of all this is that the causes of human suffering and conflict are complicated. We can expect that discerning the causes of the police killings and the racial conflict leading to protests, both peaceful and violent, well, that's going to be complicated too. Finding solution has been and will even be more complicated. As followers of loving God committed to the welfare of our neighbors, however, we are not excused from trying. We have to start by owning up to the fact that our current problems are the result of our past actions. America was founded upon an economy based upon a vigorous and large-scale slave trade. This economy was dependent upon the dehumanization of Africans who were kidnapped from their native lands, brutalized at the hands of greedy traders, and denied their basic freedoms by Americans who purchased them. As time passed, Succeeding generations were born into slavery to become chattel of their parents' owners. So let's abandon the word sin for a moment and talk about consequences. Whether the ownership of one human being by another is a sin aside, such inhumane and immoral treatment is going to have consequences. 
When treated cruelly and unjustly, any person is bound to develop resentment, anger, and eventually hatred, even murderous hatred, toward their oppressors. And just as slaves are handed down among the slaveholders from generation to generation, so too is that hatred handed down, and that hatred will eventually find expression. But, you may argue, that was all so long ago. Slavery was abolished, and a great civil war fought to end slavery in America. But it wasn't that long ago. All four of my grandparents were alive during the Civil War. Well, within the third and fourth generations, upon which the Bible says the sins of the fathers will be visited. Although slavery was abolished, emancipated slaves and subsequent generations of African Americans did not come close to achieving true freedom. Jim Crow laws openly denied equality to black Americans. And when the inherited hatreds boiled over in the 1950s and 60s, progress was made. Schools integrated and voting rights acts and other civil rights legislation was passed. But the journey was not over. The anger and the resentment still smoldered among blacks and whites. And here we are. Here we go again. The meaningful question for us to ask is not who sinned, but where do we go from here? How do we live as children of God in a post-slavery world? How do we live with our sins or our grandparents' sins? The very thing, that first thing we must do is to acknowledge the sins of the past. It's not un-American or unpatriotic to confess that the fabric of our nation has a strong thread of racism born of slavery running through it. If that thread goes unrecognized, then the moral fabric of America will continue to fray. The past cannot be changed, but the present and the future it begets can be changed. We must also acknowledge that the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s were signs of progress but did not end racial injustice or racial animosity in our country. The Jim Crow laws that grew out of Reconstruction perpetuated injustice and institutionalized policies of segregation well into the 20th century. And despite the advance of civil rights movements of the 1960s, lack of economic opportunity led to continuing resentment among African Americans who see institutionalized poverty as a subtle continuation of slavery. And we also need to acknowledge the continuing existence of racist attitudes and a clinging to white supremacy today. Overt demonstrations of white supremacy and the public resurrection and display of racist symbols such as the Confederate flag and nooses recalling lynchings show that African Americans are justified in their fears of a return to the violent acts being perpetrated against them. Confederate flags, statues glorifying Confederate heroes, and other antebellum displays are not quaint cultural reminiscences. They are encoded racism. While such artifacts are an important part of our history to be remembered, they must be preserved in context and not celebrated. 
Law and order are essential to the effective and safe functioning of our society. It is truly tragic that in many cases, law enforcement officers, officers have become the enemy of justice instead of its protectors. And while the causes for this are many and complex, an irrational fear of black men certainly contributes escalation and an excessive use of force during what should be routine interactions between police and black citizens. It's very possible this mind-fogging fear was a factor in Officer Kim Potter, making the almost unfathomable mistake of just charging her handgun instead of her taser. This fear has been a tool of racists used for the suppression of blacks since the beginning. We have to find ways to wipe out fear. We can't continue to blame the victims of racism. How often have you heard the mantra, all he had to do was not resist. He wouldn't have been shot. Or if he hadn't committed that crime in the first place, he wouldn't have been picked up. When a black man is shot during an arrest, there is an immediate rush to discredit the person being arrested. Now, to be clear, there are situations where law enforcement officers need to use lethal force to protect themselves and the public. But until we deal with the underlying manifestations of racism and fear, these tragedies will continue to be all too common. It is important that African Americans and other people of color be given the opportunity to be heard. Peaceful protests and demonstrations can be facilitated and encouraged. Black Lives Matter, in all of its manifestations, has the potential for being a force for good and progress in our fight against racial division. If legitimate outlets for anger and rage are not available, it will find a more violent means of expression. But we must do more than listen to the voices who are crying for, for justice. Meaningful action must be taken at every level. We can work in our own communities and our neighborhoods. We can confront racist attitudes and actions in our families and among our friends. We can support our police and their education and training. And we can elect people who seek peace rather than sow division. And we can hold the guilty accountable. But back to my original question, who sinned? We, might we may find the answer in the Holy Week hymn, Were You There? You know how it goes. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they hang him on the tree? Were you there? The point of the hymn is that all of us have sinned. All of us stand beneath the cross of Jesus. We are guilty. We are there. Who has sinned? We all have. But the good news is that we are forgiven through the grace of God. We need to hold ourselves accountable, but we need not be ashamed. Let us go forth and sin no more. Amen. Thank you for joining me this week. May God bless you 
and keep you and give you peace. Amen.